Chapter One, Part Three of the American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bruce Peary. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter One, by way of introduction. Part Three: The View of Writing Men. But though the native Galerton thus neglect the vernacular or even oppose its study, it has been the object of earnest lay attention since an early day, and that attention has borne fruit in a considerable accumulation of materials, if not in any very accurate working out of its origins and principles. The English, too, have given attention to it, often, alas, satirically or even indignantly. For a long while, as we shall see, they sought to stem its differentiation by heavy denunciations of its vagaries and so late as the period of the civil war they attached to it that quality of abhorrent barbarism which they saw as the chief mark of the american people but in later years they have viewed it with a greater showing of scientific calm and its definite separation from correct english at least as a spoken tongue is now quite frankly admitted the cambridge history of english literature for example says that english and american are now notably dissimilar in vocabulary and that the latter is splitting off into a distinct dialect the eleventh edition of the encyclopedia britannica going further says that the two languages are already so far apart that it is not uncommon to meet with american newspaper articles of which an untravelled englishman would hardly be able to understand a sentence a great many other academic authorities, including A. H. Sace and H. W. and F. G. Fowler, bear testimony to the same effect. On turning to the men actually engaged in writing English, and particularly to those aspiring to an American audience, one finds nearly all of them adverting, at some point or other, to the growing difficulties of intercommunication. William Archer, Arnold Bennett, H. G. Wells, Sidney Lowe, the Chestertons, and Kipling are some of those who have dealt with the matter at length. Lowe, in an article in the Westminster Gazette, ironically headed, Ought American to be Taught in Our Schools, has described how the latter-day British businessman is puzzled by his ignorance of colloquial American, and painfully hampered thereby in his handling of American trade. He continues, In the United States of North America, the study of the English tongue forms part of the educational scheme. I gather this because I find that they have professors of the English language and literature in the universities there, and I note that in the schools there are certain hours allotted for English under instructors who specialize in that subject this is quite right english is still far from being a dead language and our american kinsfolk are good enough to appreciate the fact but i think we should return the compliment we ought to learn the american language in our schools and colleges at present it is strangely neglected by the educational authorities they pay attention to linguistic attainments of many other kinds but not to this how many thousands of youths are at this moment engaged in puzzling their brains over latin and greek grammar only whitehall knows every well-conducted seminary has some instructor who is under the delusion that he is teaching english boys and girls to speak french with a good parisian accent 
we teach german italian even spanish russian modern greek arabic hindustani for a moderate fee you can acquire a passing acquaintance with any of these tongues at the berlitz institute and the gouin schools but even in these polyglot establishments there is nobody to teach you american i have never seen a grammar of it or a dictionary i have searched in vain at the booksellers for how to learn american in three weeks or some similar compendium nothing of the sort exists the native speech of one hundred millions of civilized people is as grossly neglected by the publishers as it is by the schoolmasters you can find means to learn hausa or swahili or cape dutch in london more easily than the expressive if difficult tongue which is spoken in the office the bar-room the tram-car from the snows of alaska to the mouths of the mississippi and is enshrined in a literature that is growing in volume and favor every day low then quotes an extract from an american novel appearing serially in an english magazine an extract including such Americanisms as Side-Stepper, Saltwater Taffy, Prince Albert, Coat, Boob, Bartender, and Kidding, and many characteristically American extravagances of metaphor. It might be well argued, he goes on, that this strange dialect is as near to the tongue that Shakespeare spoke as the dialect of Bayswater or Brixton, but that philological fact does not help to its understanding. You might almost as well expect him, the British businessman, to converse freely with a Portuguese railway porter because he tried to stumble through Caesar when he was in the upper fourth at school. In the London Daily Mail, W. G. Faulkner lately launched this proposed campaign of education by undertaking to explain various terms appearing in American moving pictures to English spectators. Mr. Faulkner assumed that most of his readers would understand sombrero, sidewalk, candy store, freight car, boost, elevator, boss, crook, and fall, for autumn without help but he found it necessary to define such commonplace americanisms as hoodlum hobo bunco steerer rubberneck drummer sucker dive in the sense of a thieves resort clean up graft and to feature Curiously enough, he proved the reality of the difficulties he essayed to level by falling into error as to the meanings of some of the terms he listed, among them deadbeat, flume, dub, and stag. Another English expositor, apparently following him, thought it necessary to add definitions of hold-up, quitter, rube, shack, road agent, cinch, live-wire, and scab, but he too mistook the meaning of deadbeat, and in addition he misdefined bandwagon, and substituted get out, seemingly an invention of his own, for getaway. Footnote. Of the words cited as still unfamiliar in England, Thornton has traced hobo to 1891, hold up and bunco to 1887, dive to 1882, deadbeat to 1877, hoodlum to 1872, road agent to 1866, stag to 1856, drummer to 1836, and flume to 1792. 
all of them are probably older than these references indicate End of footnote. faulkner somewhat belated in his animosity seized the opportunity to read a homily upon the vulgarity and extravagance of the american language and argued that the introduction of its coinages through the moving picture theatre anglais cinema cannot be regarded without serious misgivings if only because it generates and encourages mental indiscipline so far as the choice of expressions is concerned in other words the greater pliability and resourcefulness of american is a fault to be corrected by the english tendency to hold to that which is established cecil chesterton in the new witness recently called attention to the increasing difficulty of intercommunication not only verbally but in writing the american newspapers he said even the best of them admit more and more locutions that puzzle and dismay an english reader after quoting a characteristic headline he went on i defy any ordinary englishman to say that that is the english language or that he can find any intelligible meaning in it even a dictionary will be of no use to him he must know the language colloquially or not at all no doubt it is easier for an englishman to understand american than it would be for a frenchman to do the same just as it is easier for a german to understand dutch than it would be for a spaniard but it does not make the american language identical with the english chesterton however refrained from denouncing this lack of identity on the contrary he allowed certain merits to american i do not want anybody to suppose he said that the american language is in any way inferior to ours in some ways it has improved upon it in vigor and raciness in other ways it adheres more closely to the english of the best period testimony to the same end was furnished before this by william archer new words he said are begotten by new conditions of life and as american life is far more fertile of new conditions than ours the tendency toward neologism cannot but be stronger in america than in england america has enormously enriched the language not only with new words but since the american mind is on the whole quicker and wittier than the english with apt and luminous colloquial metaphors the list of such quotations might be indefinitely prolonged there is scarcely an english book upon the united states which does not offer some discussion more or less profound of american peculiarities of speech both as they are revealed in spoken discourse particularly pronunciation and intonation and as they show themselves in popular literature and in the newspapers and to this discussion protest is often added as it very often is by the reviews and newspapers the americans says a typical critic have so far progressed with their self-appointed task of creating an american language that much of their conversation is now incomprehensible to english people on our own side there is almost equal evidence of a sense of difference despite the fact that the educated american is presumably trained in orthodox english and can at least read it without much feeling of strangeness the american says george ade in his book of travel in pastures new 
must go to england in order to learn for a dead certainty that he does not speak the english language this pitiful fact comes home to every american when he arrives in london that there are two languages the english and the american one is correct the other is incorrect one is a pure and limpid stream the other is a stagnant pool swarming with bacilli this was written in nineteen hundred and six twenty-five years earlier mark twain had made the same observation when i speak my native tongue in its utmost purity in england he said an englishman can't understand me at all the languages continued mark were identical several generations ago but our changed conditions and the spread of our people far to the south and far to the west have made many alterations in our pronunciation and have introduced new words among us and changed the meanings of old ones even before this the great humorist had marked and hailed these differences already in roughing it he was celebrating the vigorous new vernacular of the occidental plains and mountains and in all his writings even the most serious he deliberately engrafted its greater liberty and more fluent idiom upon the stem of english and so lent the dignity of his high achievement to a dialect that was as unmistakably american as the point of view underlying it the same tendency is plainly visible in william dean howells his novels are mines of american idiom and his style shows an undeniable revolt against the trammels of english grammarians in eighteen eighty six he made a plea in harper's for a concerted effort to put american on its own legs if we bother ourselves he said to write what the critics imagine to be english we shall be priggish and artificial and still more so if we make our americans talk english on our lips our continental english will differ more and more from the insular english and we believe that this is not deplorable but desirable howells then proceeded to discuss the nature of the difference and described it accurately as determined by the greater rigidity and formality of the english of modern england in american he said there was to be seen that easy looseness of phrase and gait which characterized the english of the elizabethan era and particularly the elizabethan hospitality to changed meanings and bold metaphors american he argued made new words much faster than english and they were in the main words of much greater daring and savor the difference between the two tongues thus noted by the writers of both was made disconcertingly apparent to the american troops when they first got to france and came into contact with the english fraternizing was made difficult by the wide divergence in vocabulary and pronunciation a divergence interpreted by each side as a sign of uncouthness the y m c a made a characteristic effort to turn the resultant feeling of strangeness and homesickness among the americans to account in the chicago tribune's paris edition of july seventh nineteen seventeen i find a large advertisement inviting them to make use of the y m c a clubhouse in the avenue montaigu where american is spoken earlier in the war the illinois Staatszeitung 
no doubt seeking to keep the sense of difference alive advertised that it would publish articles daily in the american language end of chapter one part three